Brittany Packett said, an ally shows up when it is convenient, an accomplice shows up when there is a risk. I am Tamara Ross, and this is Ally to Accomplice. Take a risk and join me on a learning journey where we will hear from smart and generous individuals who will help guide us to use our power and privilege to challenge the status quo and create equitably inclusive spaces for all. Once you have seen injustice, you can't unsee it. We are obliged to act. This podcast is being recorded in the Treaty 7 region, the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Stony Nakoda Nation, the Tsutina Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. I am grateful as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play here, and strive to live in right relations to all those human and non-human who call this place home. My guest today is the always fabulous, generous, and fashionable, from her amazing hats to her incredible shoes and everything in between, Esther Grisham Grimm. In describing herself, she said, I think I have a Baroque heart laced with Danny Kay and Jimi Hendrix. Esther is Executive Director of Three Arts, a social justice and arts organization in Chicago advocating for women artists, artists of color, and artists with disabilities working in the performing, teaching, and visual arts. Esther and I first met when she was on the board and then board chair of the Alliance of Artists Communities, a service organization whose membership includes those who run and fund artist residency programs, and I was the new board member, a naive, overly polite Canadian who kept annoying everyone by constantly bringing up the amazing social programs and support for health and arts in Canada. Esther always listened, cared, and helped me immeasurably in my professional and personal growth. Welcome, Esther. It's always great to see or hear you. And I couldn't think of a better guest for our inaugural podcast episode. Thank you for having me here. Can we start by having you talk a little bit about what was the Three Arts Club of Chicago, an organization founded by women in 1912, into what is now Three Arts? I could spend days responding to that question. We were founded in 1912 um, by about 31 women leaders in our city in Chicago. And the notion in those days, this was eight years before white women had the right to vote. The notion was to try to break through male dominated culture and support young women with kind of a professional development pipeline to become artists and to become seen in, in dominant uh, mainstream culture. The Three Arts Club of Chicago kept going chiefly because we became a kind of alternative dormitory to the downtown art schools that didn't have dorms. And so our board of directors in those days subsidized the housing for young women studying the arts in Chicago. That was the primary mission. And for about 25 years in our history, the board also offered scholarships to those cool. women. And then came fast forward into the 70s. This is a beautiful 50,000 square foot historic landmark property, a building designed for and by our organization to house all those women, had gone many decades with deferred maintenance. It was not an accessible building, not up to code. It was kind of grandfathered into the Chicago uh, building code. And so at various times from the 70s forward, the organization came to kind of the brink of deciding to close. 
and the board voted to close. But a couple of board members lingered on, rebuilt the board, and developed a 10-year plan. Well, they did such a good job that by the time I came onto the scene, which was 2002, I've been in my job, this is my 19th year, the organization was still going, albeit limping along, still with deferred maintenance. And the question was much more urgent. What do we do? How do we contemporize? How do we uh, bring the mission up to date? Do we do that within the building or not within the building? And we uh, developed a vision committee and an artist committee and asked for input about whether we should stay or go. And so in a very sad board meeting in 2006, in the summer, we voted to sell the property. And this was an interesting turning point because our organization had what many don't. We had an asset that we could sell. So while we couldn't stay in the building, we could keep the organization. There was the interesting turning point for me because the board said, okay, what should we do now? Any executive director would appreciate it where I could really spread my wings and think about the organization holistically. We wanted to continue to support women, continue to focus on Chicago, continue to have a social justice aim. And we wanted to continue to give grants as we had done for about 25 years in the organization's history. So all of that came together, but what got added on in the mission, which is we advocate for and support women artists, artists of color and deaf and disabled artists in the Chicago community, working in the performing, teaching and visual arts. The artists of color and the deaf and disabled artists were added on when we realized that the grant programs, the awards programs in the country in those days, this was now 14 years ago, were still weighing very heavily toward white artists and in particular male artists. And so those same social justice impulses that led our founding mothers still existed and led us to expand the mission. Fast forward to today, we're up to 23 awards each year in those three categories I mentioned. And in 2020, we went from about $270,000 of awards to 470,000 awards. What brought you to this work? Was there a singular moment or something you saw in injustice perhaps that led you to this work and called you to it? I do feel called to it, but I'm not sure I know exactly what led me to it. The part that you're getting at today about social justice has always been present in the work that I've done. And so I think I kind of have been trained in a way toward this equity work. It was that moment when I was given you know, somewhat free reign to write the mission and design the programs for this new three arts. Because here I am, my first job as an executive director in an extraordinary moment of transformation of a hundred year old organization, working alone, you know, trying to figure out what the future should be and not knowing that there were some organizations who had come before in working toward giving to individual artists. And so I, I sat at my computer and I did all kinds of Boolean searches, you know, artist mm-hmm. awards, giving to artists. And I found these handful of organizations and reached out to them and met with them and learned from them. And then I went off again and I looked at, you know, who was getting grants and awards, how many women, how many people of color, how many people with disabilities and so on in all kinds of organizations and who is being you know, put under the spotlight, who's being supported by the arts field in general. And this was an eye-opening moment for me. 
I was coming from a place of thinking about gender equity and that rapidly turned into, and here's the turning point, turned into racial Mm -hmm. disability and gender equity. When I started to put the data together and started to see who was getting supported. That was definitely the turning point and it, it kind of gave me a lot of determination to see this thing through, this thing being the new organization mm-hmm. and to do my best with all this great advice coming from colleagues to turn it into something that could last. A lot of your work is as an advocate for artists. What is the most challenging part of the work for you? When you think about the nonprofit system, the way we seek funding, the way we have to prove our organizations in a very competitive environment to gain support and so on. Somewhere in that system, in that kind of power system, is the furthering of a way that we're trained to talk about our organizations as singular, innovative, utterly unique on the planet, that sort of thing, which I think is really dangerous. And part of what I think what happens is that you'll often read about an organization and all of their programs, but you will never hear about the artists who actually run those programs. So you'll read about X organization with great roster of arts education initiatives. Who's really teaching those? Who's designing the curricula? So I think it's very important to lift artists out of the mire of that nonprofit system and put them front and center. Our organization is very vigilant and sensitive to not institutionalizing artists' lives, stories, and experiences. When I write a grant proposal, when I write about three arts, I am not writing about the transformative experience an artist had in receiving our grant, unless they have explicitly said that and given me permission to tell that story. What I am writing about, what I am lifting up is their their art and their agency. So I think one challenge is how do you, as an artist-centric organization, talk about what you do without institutionalizing? I think it's an important point for any organization to think about. It's interesting because a lot of artists of color disability say, I just want people to focus on my art. I don't want to have to go in everywhere and educate an artist residency, an old gallery that has no access to it for me. I don't want to spend my time educating them. I just want to be brought in and be able to do my art and show my art. That's putting the art and the artist first. There's something you make me think of that's really tricky in our mission because we've got these umbrella terms, artists of color, deaf and disabled artists, those are umbrella terms and they can be really difficult and and problematic. Not everybody identifies under an umbrella term and that's a good thing that they don't. So we always have this very challenging moment where we have to think, okay, that's in our mission. It's overtly stated in our mission for a reason so that you know front and center who we support, what we do, why we do what we do. And why we do, of course, is about equity. But it is awkward and challenging because we are categorizing human beings in those umbrella terms. So there's always a trade-off. There's always a challenge there. You raised disability. And I think a lot about disability culture and, of course, all of the deaf and disabled artists with whom we work. And there, too, is a challenge, which is that oftentimes people want to know about an impairment. How did you get that? 
why are you in a wheelchair? You know, these very private questions. And we are not impairment focused or we, have, we do not operate within a medical model at Three Arts. We are about the artist, the artist's work, what the artist wants to do. So we try to be driven by their needs and wants in the world, right? And we only know if we ever know anything about an artist's chronic illness, let's say something like that, it's because we have a true relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. But that is not something that we will put forward. It's not our business. So there, there are these intricate moments of private versus public, institutional versus human, you know, stating a social justice purpose that uses umbrella terms and yet supporting individual artists who may not fit into those terms. All of those are very challenging moments to think about and be aware of. In the moment you use an umbrella term, it moves from looking at the art to, oh, okay, this is a person of color. So this is how I need to speak with them. Exactly. And, and alternative umbrella terms are still umbrella terms. Mm -hmm. So like Alana, you know, leaves out certain people. BIPOC is another. And so there's always going to be something wrong and potentially offensive in any of the terms, including the ones that Three Arts uses. I actually do want to ask how you deal with inequities that you must see all the time or deal with organizations or people who are trying to just, who are just ticking boxes, who are not authentic in, let's say, a, a donor or an organization that's giving money. You no, know, there is no one way. Because in the end, racism is faceted. Mm -hmm. You know, gender injustice is faceted. Ableism is faceted. And you have to kind of work hard to be mindful of all of the angles of those facets, so to speak, and realize that we are butting up against stronghold systems. And that means that we have to be committed to self-awareness, working around the clock, and not letting go of our grip on this. And I think I would say that, you know, as a non-disabled white person, I am complicit, whether I'm aware of it or not, whether I'm working toward justice or not in perpetuating inequities. And I know that I have benefited from the systems that privilege white people. And so, what can I do is the main question. I think about that privilege. I try and keep that privilege in my awareness as hard as that can be to do all of the time and center that in my work. So I think that for people who are truly committed, this is a matter of training and thinking and speaking and acting and never letting go. If we're just talking about racism, or any of these other isms, ableism, you know, they've been around for many centuries. And it's really up to, this is my belief, it's up to white people to tear down the racist structures that we've benefited from. I try to not let go of my grip of that awareness. And by the way, I'm speaking with I right now, but that goes for our organization as well. And every member of our board and staff and even though, you know, our board and staff are predominantly leaders of color and leaders with disabilities, it's still true. We have to be aware of the systems we are mired in. And if we're not aware, we just have to keep asking each other and keep sort of turning over every stone to see what we might have missed. 
recently many people have said, and this is sort of deflating, but also still a call to continue, is that this work is going to take my lifetime and I will not see the change in my lifetime. I believe it's going to take many lifetimes. Yeah. The real change is not happening because we've done a 180 or somebody thought of a really innovative idea and it changed everything. It's happening because of a thousand small maneuvers, a thousand small mo movements forward that a thousand of us are taking, hundred thousand of us, a million of us. And so it's a little like, this is kind of a corny example, but like a trim tab on a rudder of a big ship, right? This tiny little thing that's just moving just a little bit, but it basically will lift an entire ocean liner in the water. And so I think when we come up against that stronghold, that mountain that doesn't move, there are still a thousand small maneuvers we can make and we should never stop. Barak de Soleil said, this is work that we do one by one by one. It's not work that we do by going once to a protest. It's not work we do by attending one anti-racism training and then declaring ourselves to be not racist. This is work that will be our whole lifetimes and should be. It's on us to change this. What do you think makes someone a good ally? You know, Tamara, this is what I'm thinking these days. I don't use terms like ally or accomplice. And it's because I feel those terms are a little bit of like getting a, a medal of honor. Not too long ago in a protest and a white person was carrying a sign that said, I can't breathe. And all I could think of was, no, you absolutely can. And I'm guessing that they felt like a great ally or a great accomplice in that moment, but I don't see it that way. I don't think this is about that we white people are here to help, which is what being an ally indicates. I just think you don't get a medal for showing up. This is a system, if we're just talking about racism here, that white people erected. So why are we helping people of color take it down? Take it's it down. our responsibility to take it down. How do you feel, or do you feel at all, that the arts is uniquely poised to show us injustice and move the viewer to address it? Art. And I'm, when I say the word art, I mean every form of it represents and reflects the heart and soul of humanity. That is the place that crosses into emotion that allows us to, in sometimes in nonverbal ways, understand things about each other, about the world, about our own thought processes, about our inner workings. And therefore, it is the place ca that can be most moving. And there is no great venture in the world. There's no great change that happens in the world without the song that you're singing while you're doing it, without <laughs> the motivation. I absolutely do think that within art, whether it's art specifically about justice, let's say, that it's within art that we can find in ourselves what we need in order to persevere, to endure hardship and crisis, and to get to know each other, to get to know ourselves. What artist, writer, advocate that we may not be aware of that you would like to make us aware of? The first is an artist named Riva Lehrer, who's a visual artist, a teacher, a curator, a disability rights activist, sort of everything you can imagine, extraordinarily intelligent and witty woman who has shifted recently. And in fact, due to a residency she had uh, supported by Three Arts at the McDowell Colony, where mm -hmm. she started a book 
So she moved a little bit from visual arts into this book. And it's called, the book I want to talk about is called Golem Girl. And it's a memoir and it is all over the news. And I encourage everybody to get a copy and read it. It's about Riva's life, about her family, her experience of disability, of her experience in the arts. And it is a beautifully moving, funny, deep, just gorgeous piece of writing and it's up for a couple of national awards as well and I think the staff of the Smithsonian named it one of the top books of 2020. The second artist is Will Liverman who is an operatic baritone. Will is now working on a kind of retelling of the Barber of Seville as set in a Southside barbershop called The Factotum and he has this new CD out called Dreams of a New Day that is Um, a compilation of songs by Black composers. He has the most resonant, gorgeous, deep Mm -hmm. voice and a twinkle in his eye every time he sings. So look him up too. Those are two wonderful artists to track. One more heavy question for you. What is one action? I just want one action that you're going to give us because I know there's many that we could undertake as white privileged to move ourselves from allyship to action to accomplice, to doing something, not just learning about what's going on, but actually making some change? I mean, I think that, you know, white people have been brought up in a world that rewards us for being silent. So we benefit by ignoring racism or declaring that we're not racist so that we don't have to do anything about it. So I would say one concrete action, if you see something, say something. And if you say something, make sure you can also say it to your own self. Thank you, Esther, as always, for your generosity, honesty, and authenticity. In the paper by Wendy Ng, Cyrus Marcus Ware, and Alyssa Greenberg titled Activating Diversity and Inclusion, they mentioned five guiding principles to good allyship, and one that Esther spoke of today and models so well is, allyship is a conscious and constant practice with a process of constant self-reflection. I will put links to Three Arts and the two artists and their work Esther mentioned here today in the podcast details for this episode. Thank you for joining me today. In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksika, Kainai, Pekani Nations, the Tsutina, the Stony Nakoda, Bearscaw, Chiniki, Wesley Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Continue this important learning journey with me in future Ally to Accomplice podcasts. Merci Marc Maziad pour la musique. Thanks to Don Saunders-Dahl for the artwork on the podcast logo.